Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Logan campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Uh, We're in a series at the moment that uh, many of you would know called Parables. And uh, we're looking at some of the parables. We're looking at the teaching of Jesus and how Jesus wanted to give us great profound truths by taking us into simple stories that we could then apply to our lives. And uh, we've been picking out some parables to look at. This morning, I want to look at the parable of the ten virgins. And uh, I feel like God's got a word in this for us this morning in some way. I pray that He does touch you with His word. There's something about the Word of God that the seed that goes into our heart that multiplies His ability to put faith inside us and gives us the capacity to stand in our life in times of trial and in times when we need to minister to others. So my prayer is that the Word of faith this morning takes root inside you. If you've got your Bibles, please go to Matthew 25 and verse 1. Matthew 25 verse 1, it'll be on the screen for those that don't have a Bible with them this morning. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is a parable about two groups of people that had a bunch of stuff in common. They were all virgins. They all had lamps. They were all waiting for the bridegroom to arrive. They all had a measure of oil and they all fell asleep. There was a lot in common. However, Jesus points to the two things that they didn't have in common. And these are the things I'd love to look at this morning. Number one was that there five were wise and five were foolish. And the second thing he points to is he says to the ones who came later, the foolish ones who went to buy the oil, who came back, he said to them, I do not know you. Five were wise, five were foolish, and when the foolish ones came back, then the bridegroom said, I do not know you. This morning, my hope is that we'll draw out of those two passages a little bit of an understanding about what it means to be wise or foolish in the kingdom of God. What is God trying to say to us? And how can we walk more wisely before the Lord? And secondly, is how is it that it's possible to know the bridegroom, but he does not know you? How is it possible for us to know about Jesus, but for him not to know us? There's a caution in that for me this morning that I I feel like we need to pay heed to. I think there'll be many people 
in that day who will say, well, I know who Jesus is, but there'll be many that Jesus will say, but I don't know you. And there's something that grips my heart about that in sadness, that that would be the case. I pray this morning that we'd hear something from the Lord. Could we pray? Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would just open our ears, our spiritual ears and our spiritual eyes to see into what it is you'd have us understand. God, I pray that whatever word we need to take with us this morning, Father, regardless what I might say, I pray you'd take the right word into every heart. God, that they'd lead with the word you want them to have. And Father, that would give you praise and you glory. And we all said, Amen. Look, this is a Jewish audience who understood the marriage customs of the day. And I think it's important for a minute that we just kind of catch up with what are the customs that Jesus was speaking into. See, when a a young girl was to become betrothed, she would go into an engagement period. She would be asked uh, to, to marry into this particular family. The bridegroom, of course, would approach and uh, they would have what would be an arranged marriage. But the engagement would start from the day of being asked and last 12 months. At that time, the bride would then, or the bride-to-be, would pick 10 uh, bridesmaids that would do the journey of the 12 months with her. And, and their role was to keep her encouraged, to kind of keep reminding her that the bridegroom is coming to get her at some point and, uh, and to keep her faithful and keep her focused and kind of become uh, the pers- people that she would journey with. Uh, while the bride and the bridegroom would live separately for that 12 months, they were still betrothed to each other. It was as good as if they were married, but they weren't living together and they hadn't consummated their marriage. On the wedding day itself then, the 10 bridesmaids' job was to look out for the bridegroom. And why? Because the custom of the day was the bridegroom could come any time in the day. So the bridegroom could just show up. And that was part of the, the, the way that the bridegroom would come and, and, and take possession of his bride, if you can imagine. I, he comes on his terms, if that makes sense. Remember, it's a very male society of that time. You've got to kind of put your head back into that customs of the day. He would come and that would be his time. And what they would do is the bridesmaids would look out for, he's coming, he's coming. And so she would then hurriedly finish those last things she had to do to be prepared. The bride groom would then take his bride-to-be, they would go and consummate the marriage, there would, become, there would be an inspection and things that would happen, we won't get into anything indelicate today, uh, to just make sure that she was a virgin at the time, and then they would go to a feast together where they would then feast for days, and that was the wedding day. So kind of a little bit back the front, what we're used to, but Jesus was speaking to a big group of people who knew this well, just like we would know what a wedding looked like today. And so in this period, this story made sense to these people. There's a couple of points here about the unwise virgins, the unwise bridesmaids I just want us to look at. Because the five unwise bridesmaids had failed to keep enough oil in their lamps, they were not present for the moment of consummation between the bride and the bridegroom. In other words, they'd been endured for the 12 months. They'd waited on the wedding day. They had been on the lookout, but as it came time for the bride and the bridegroom to come together, five of them were missing. The moment where the actual betrothal became concrete, if you like, became cemented as part of the customs and the community of the day, they were not there. Why? 
because they didn't have any oil. They'd failed to do their job of safely seeing the bride to the end of her betrothal period. Their foolishness, Jesus said, had cost them something. And their foolishness was directly connected to the fact they didn't have enough oil, so they were shut out of the feast. When they came back with the oil in the end, ready, it was too late. The consummation had happened, the feast had begun, and they'd missed their window. Some things about the wise that are worth reflecting on. The wise, though, felt the weight of the importance of their role, so much so that they had rearranged their priorities before that time so that they carried more oil. The rearrangement of their priorities was directly connected to an investment they made in oil. It had cost them something. They'd gone deeper into their investment in oil so that if they had to wait a bit longer, they'd have enough. But that investment came from a value system that said, this is an important role. The thing I've got to do today or over this next period of time is so important, I cannot be left short. I cannot allow myself to be left short. I see my role. I see the value. Therefore, whatever it costs me, I will take the extra that I need just in case I need it. Obviously, the same priority didn't sit with the unwise. For the wise, their future vision caused them to make a present investment. Their future vision caused them to make a present investment. Can I say, I think it's true in life everywhere, short-sightedness will cost you. Short-sightedness will cost you. Thinking temporarily, thinking in the now, what, you know, if I... If I spend all that I have today, there'll be nothing for tomorrow. I think we've grown up being taught that, haven't we, at every level. So there's something about tomorrow that we've got to be mindful of as we live today. We need to be here today, but we also need to be mindful of tomorrow. And faithfulness has got something to do with the value that I place in my tomorrow. I will be faithful today because tomorrow I see where I need to be and why I need to be there, yeah? So I'm faithful today. I'll do the simple things today in preparation that tomorrow could be the outcome that I want. It's the September school holidays at the moment, we know. And that means in our family that our caravan goes to Cotton Tree. And uh, every year now for probably, I don't know, maybe eight years or so, um, we're on this routine where our little beat-up, 25-year-old caravan with the antenna that doesn't work and the handles that are all broken inside and the dodgy annex with the rips in it that you've got to put plastic bags into when it rains goes somewhere in the holidays. And in September, it goes to Cotton Tree and it sort of endures itself up there. In fact, we were down overnight last night for a party. Uh, someone turned 50 and... Uh, and we heard that there was a big storm going through up there. And we thought, oh, no, it's just going to be a wash full of water. But as it turned out, it was fine. Um, anyhow, but the, the point of this story is this. And I think there's some photos coming up. There you go. Um, this is the cotton tree view. Somewhere up there as it scrolls through, you'll see we're right on the beach. But let me tell you something. This is a labor of love to get right on the beach. If you know anything about your caravan protocols, when you first start in a van park, you get put wherever they put you. But then as you walk through the van park and you look at the other sites that you would rather be on, you think, oh, that'd be a good place to be. 
we're a bit dodgy. We're like, you know, a cut lunch from the beach. We're kind of, you know, a miles from the amenities block. Yeah, they're all the key real estate pieces that you want. How do we get a little bit closer? So when it's time to renew, you pay your deposit. Would you like to come back again next year? So yes, I'll put my deposit down on this one I don't want. But by October the 1st every year, if you haven't renewed your deposit in the van park, then all the sites become open. So on the day of October the 1st at 9.01, the phones ring as people ring in to try and grab the sites that they really want because someone's been asleep at the wheel. And so that's us. So over the years, we've kind of, you creep up. And so now, this is kind of our van. Our van's that little beat up one there next to that nice Jeep. That's not our Jeep, by the way. You can see we're surrounded by rich people. And there's the clampets. There's the, the old poor pastors in the middle there, right there. But if you were to turn around and look the other way, and when the photo comes back, you'll see the view. It's wonderful. We walk straight out on the beach. Anyhow. That's taken years to get there. Now, the key is this. After the end of every holiday, they say, would you like to renew? We go, yes. We put our money straight down. In fact, if we possibly could, we'll pay in full, but we at least put a big, fat deposit down. We make an investment because we're not losing that side <laughs> for anyone. Oh, man, what a, what a game we play. But it's true in life, isn't it? We always make a sacrificial investment into an experience that gives us the greatest reward. And that experience is coming out of a value system. It comes out of something that we see as a vision of a future we want to walk into. What made the wise virgins wasn't the fact that they were a virgin. Virginity in this story speaks about purity, speaks about their desire to be separate and so they were like the other five. It doesn't speak about whether they had lamps, and the lamps are speaking about their desire to be witness, their desire to, to, to sort of take their role and declare that to the world or community around them. They were prepared to be a witness. They doesn't, it wasn't based on whether they were positioned for the bridegroom to arrive. They were separate. They'd taken themselves apart. The 10 of them had spent the time waiting for the bridegroom. And it didn't matter whether they fell asleep or not because all 10 of them fell asleep. None of them waited that faithfully for the bridegroom. What made them wise was that they'd previously brought extra oil. In the scripture, what oil speaks about is the Holy Spirit. It speaks about the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what, what this story is trying to say to us, and there's probably many meanings, and, and theologically we won't get bogged down in the many possible meanings it could be, but I think for us this morning, what it's trying to say to us is that your relationship with the presence of God, your relationship with the oil of the Spirit, the presence of God that dwells in you, that goes with you, is it current today? is the reservoir of the presence of God. When you say, Jesus is my Lord, is that something that fills you with a sense of now? Yes, God is with me. I know the sense of God. He is around me. The oil of the Holy Spirit. I think there's a warning in the church for the, in this parable. And what it's saying is this. 
We must be vigilant. We must be a people that are, are not just saying, well, once saved, always saved. I've, I've said the prayer, and so I'm kind of done. I've, I've ticked the box. I've, I've kind of done what Jesus wants me to do. So, you know, I, I feel like I've done what I... Now, now I'll do whatever I like. I'll live how I like. I won't necessarily... Uh, connect myself to God much, but you know I'll come on on Sunday and I'll I'll make sure my kids get an, just enough of Jesus in them. That's all good. But where are you with God? Where's your personal relationship with Him? What's the depth of the oil of the reservoir that's in your lamp? We all need the presence of the Holy Spirit. We all need the presence of the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians. Chapter 1 says, it should come up on the screen. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. See, that's how you know you're saved this morning. If you ever wonder, God, how do I know if I really, really am saved? Can I tell you, it's the Holy Spirit that's your guarantee. It's the presence of God that's with you. That's your guarantee. Paul says very clearly in 2 Corinthians, the Spirit is our guarantee. He has sealed us. And in that relationship, in that connection with God, we know that we are sons and daughters of God. But what this story tells us is the oil of the Spirit will cost you something. It's not going to be something that you'll just get for free. You must go and buy it. In other words, there is an exchange of your life. It's gonna be, there's going to be something you're going to have to give in order for you to receive a currency in the oil of the Spirit. And Jesus is saying to us this morning, I believe through this parable, is be sure you're wise enough to see that. Be sure you're looking down the road far enough that you can see you need more of the Holy Spirit so that you will endure for when the bridegroom comes. There's no doubt that salvation is a free gift. You know, Romans 6 and verse 23, our kids probably learn it. You learned it if you're at Sunday school. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of salvation is there, but have you noticed that intimacy always costs you something? Intimacy costs you something. I can have the beginnings of my relationship with God, but have I developed intimacy with the Father in heaven? That's going to be the oil that sustains you. That's the oil that Jesus is talking about. I want to show you a photo on the screen here of this young kid's starting their marriage journey together. Really with no clue. Anyone else who's married in the room knows that's true. But thought we'd be fine, you know, as you do. Naivety is a great strength to any relationship as we headed out. And can I tell you that over the years, I think we've found, probably Rochelle more than anyone, is that intimacy does cost you something. In other words, when two people come together, there is a way that he thinks and there's a way that she thinks. I still remember in our first six months of marriage, our first big fight. I still remember the way in which we approached that fight. I still remember Rochelle running away from me up the stairs in our little townhouse, 
going into the second bedroom, shutting and trying to shut the door. As I came bolting up the stairs and saying, don't you run away from me. We're going to talk this through until we work it out. I don't want to talk to you. Get away from me. I said, no, well, I know every good book says, well, you've got to talk about it as a couple. We're talking about it now. She said, we're not talking about it now. And I raced up. I remember running into the second bedroom, shutting the door behind me and sitting against the door and saying, we're not leaving until we've talked about this. She said, well, we're not leaving. (laughs) Uh, It's got a little better over the years since then. (laughs) Now it's me that's running away saying, no, not now, please. (laughs) Intimacy costs you something. Why? Because you're learning it's not my way. It's not her way. It's our way. We learn our way. I learned that part of me's got to die and hopefully she learns a part of her's got to die. Big part, really. And, um, and then we work out our way. We work out the way we do it. And can I say this? I've got to be conscious of our way so that that becomes my new way. Yeah? I learn and you learn the new way of doing relationship. So it's not that I'm pretending something different. I actually have to change and learn a new way of communicating, of connecting, of problem solving, of all that. And so throughout the years, we learn our intimacy. We stick with it. We go the thick and the thin. We try and work our way through. I don't think it's any different with God. Our consciousness of God is all about us learning his way. Because how many people know that your way of living life is probably less than perfect? But God knows how to live this world. He knows how to walk with you. He knows what you need. He knows how to help you succeed. He knows how to put your peace, his peace in your heart in spite of your circumstances. He knows how to give you his faith that you need when you face the obstacles. But it's not my way that God comes and blesses It's his way that I take on. And so intimacy costs me because I'm learning to put aside my thinking for his thinking. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost me my pride. It's going to cost me my fear. I'm happy about that. You can have as much of my fear as you want, God. It's going to cost me some time. It's going to certainly cost me at times investment. But it's worth it as we become conscious of God. I love this, love, 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 this scripture in Philippians 3, verse 10, in the Amplified, though. And uh, this is an old timer talking about Amplified. Many people don't speak Amplified today, but I love it. Just read this through with me if you can. For my determined purpose is, for my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Isn't that a good picture? That I might progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection. I reckon that's a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of progressive steps that we take Not my way, but your way. How do I do it? It's because I pursue the presence of the Holy Spirit. I am conscious of Him in my life. Acts 3 tells the story about Peter and John. It's after Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. 
and they go past the gate beautiful and there's the lame man who's been there for 40 years sitting at the gate. And they say these words, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Here's the thing I want to draw out about that. You know, there is a way of the world called silver and gold. And we need silver and gold to live in the world. But silver and gold is not the way of the Spirit. And so there is a different type of transaction. There's a different type of intimacy. There's a different type of price I'm going to pay for me to learn to walk with God. And it won't have anything to do with silver and gold. It's not the ways of this world system. It's not my commercial acumen. It's not my resilience, my attitude that I build. It's not my, my this, my that, my skills, my, the way people recognize me as a great this or a whatever. You know, it's, those things will be important to a point. But that's not how you buy the oil of the Holy Spirit. It's not silver and gold based. It's not based on the rewards of the world system. It's based on relationship with God time spent with God. You, you can't build relationship outside of just good quality time. And for that matter, good quantity time. As we come to know Him. I reckon one of the great deceptions is that we decide in our heart we have enough of God. I've got enough of God now. I'll get on with the real work that I need to do. I reckon we need to remind ourselves from time to time, you know what the real work is? Walking with God. That's the real work. Everything else we'll do for a short time and then it won't matter. The second thing I, I, I look at in this story, which, I'm, which grips me, is when Jesus or the bridegroom in this story says, I do not know you. The scary point is that it seems it's possible to know about Jesus, but he doesn't know you. The word know, and I don't want to be indelicate here when I say this, but the word know in this scripture, in this particular context, is speaking about the idea of sexual intimacy. He's actually talking about an intimacy that is as close as sexual intimacy is. It's the same know that's used when back in Genesis, Adam knew Eve and they conceived. It's, the same, it's that same intimacy. And it's not talking about the physical act. What it's talking about, though, is the closeness of the shared union that's there. What Jesus is saying is, I don't know you. I don't, there's no shared union between us. I look into your life and I don't see the fruit of myself in you. We, the church, we are the bride. We are the woman that Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to marry. And all the way through our lives, the bridegroom is wanting to impregnate the bride with his seed. What is the seed? The word that comes from his mouth. The seeds that come from the bridegroom will impregnate the bride. What with? With the fruit that comes out of that, which is, of course, the reproduction of himself. We're going to look like Jesus more with more word that's inside us. And when Jesus says, I don't know you, what he's saying is, I don't recognize anything of my seed in you. There's no fruit of intimacy in you. And it's not a measure of indelicacy here this morning. It's just the reality. This is how God set this whole thing up. This is his design. And he's asking us to understand it from that perspective. Ephesians 5 and verse 25 says this, and it's a, it's a verse that's speaking to husbands and wives, but I want to pick the part out where he's talking about the church. 
Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Now he's talking about the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. It's a picture of the bridegroom and the bride and the intimacy of knowing each other that Jesus is trying to get across to us and Paul is writing about. One of the greatest privileges of walking with God is the fellowship of his presence. It's the fellowship of him. There's nothing like the presence of God. There's nothing, nothing on this earth, no greater thrill, no greater comfort, no greater opportunity for a human soul to feel like they're worth something than to know the presence of God. A glimpse of the presence of God, a minute in the presence of God is worth an eternity. David wrote about it, about the courts of our God. As he was in the courts of his God. He'd rather spend time in the courts of his God than any other place because he knew, the pre- he knew who he was when he came before God. God never takes one thing away from you. God doesn't strip you back. God doesn't want to condemn you. God doesn't want to chastise you. He doesn't want to criticize you. What God wants to do is raise you up. He wants you to take the outer husk of your life that has come around your life to dull you from who he is. He wants to strip that off you, but he doesn't want to strip you. He wants to speak his words of life in you and he wants to lift you up so that you would know him. And what I find is this, that the more we get to know him, the more we want to know him. It's one of the greatest addictions that is worth having. If there's any addiction you should get, this is the one. Become addicted to the presence of God. People say, oh, it seems like all you want to do is chase experience with God. That seems a bit thin. I said, I don't think it's thin at all. I think it's the most wonderful thing you could ever do. Absolutely. Let's chase every experience we can with him. There's plenty of other experiences to chase, but they will leave you empty in the end. Not God. He is so wonderful. He is so wonderful. My question for you today, just as we, as we wrap up, if, the, if I could ask just the music team to come. When God looks at your life, does he see the fruit of conception in you? Is there something inside you that draws you to him, that looks like him inside you? And as you fellowship the words that he gives you, are you feeling and sensing the presence of God? Are you conscious that your father is with you? Are you conscious that you're part of his family? And if not, are you pursuing that so that it becomes more and more a part of your life? Because you're doing it because you want to be waiting for when the bridegroom comes. You want to be ready and prepared. If right now, today, you say, well, I don't really feel that, there's still time. Take hold of that by faith and say, God, that's my mission then. When I leave this place, I'm going to pursue it until I have it. I'm not going to let go of the fact that God wants me to be prepared and ready. I'll do whatever it takes for me to do that. Whatever priority I've got to reset, I'll reset it. Because in the end, when the bridegroom comes, I want to be there with my lamp. I want my oil to be burning. I want to have a big smile on my face and said, we've been waiting for you. But actually, if it goes anything like the Scripture, he probably has to wake us up. But when he wakes us up, my lamp will still be burning. I'll say, well, thank you that my lamp's still burning. What a wonderful grace that you've given me. But my lamp is burning. I'm here for you. Let's go into this feast together. It'll be a great day. 
on that day, you will never, ever regret whatever price you paid. You won't regret the early mornings. You won't regret the late nights. You won't regret any money you put in the offering. You won't regret going out to pray for that person that needed to be prayed for. You won't regret reading your Bible from cover to cover. You won't regret any of it. You'll say, thank God I made the most important investment of my life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you help us live with eternity in sight? Would you help us live with the sense that what we have today, God, is a blessing from you? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We look around and it's a wonderful place you've made for us to live in. But God, we also know that it's quite temporal because at some point we will leave this earth and we will meet you. And Father, I ask you, you'd help us by your grace as you already do. But God, would you continue to help us Put oil in our lamp. Help us be ready. Help us to be a people that live vigilantly, looking to you, listening to you, creating place for you in our lives. Father, bless every family, every home, every marriage that's in this building today by your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Gateway Baptist Church. We're a growing family and everybody who walks through our doors is welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, please head to gatewaybaptist.com.au to find out more.